Hello, everyone. Welcome to our listeners in the Big Apple from across the U.S. and around the world. I'm Jeff Goodman, and you've tuned into Rediscovering New York. Professionally, I'm a real estate broker with Halstead Real Estate, and I love New York. Rediscovering New York is a weekly program about the history, texture, and current vibe of our amazing cities. On most shows, like tonight's, we focus on an individual New York neighborhood, exploring its history and its current energy. What makes that particular New York neighborhood special? And we do it through interviews with historians, local business owners, nonprofit organizations, preservationists, local musicians, and even artists. Sometimes we host a show about an interesting and vital color of the city that's not focused on one particular neighborhood. In prior episodes, we've covered things like a history of U.S. presidents who had some kind of history in New York. We've looked at the history of the women's suffrage movement in the city. We've talked about immigrants who've come here. We've had some episodes during Stonewall 50 about the city's LGBT history. We've explored the history of bicycles and cycling. They've been in New York for 200 years. And we've had shows on the history of punk and opera in New York. They were separate shows, by the way. We kept them separate. In the future, we may journey to some of the city's parks or the subway or some of our grander train stations or the city in the age of a specific social or political movement. After the broadcast, each show is available on podcast. You can hear us on iTunes, Spotify, SoundCloud, Stitcher, and there are other services, some of which I don't even know about, but they're out there. Tonight, we're journeying to a very special place. Uh, it's one of the quintessential New York neighborhoods, and it's also, in a lot of ways, the story of America, the story of the United States, a place where many different people have come, lived, thrived, and have moved on to continue their lives and other parts of this great country in the American dream. My first guest is Morris Vogel. Morris J. Vogel is the president of New York's Lower East Side Tenement Museum. He was president from 2008 through 2017, and he's resumed that role in 2019 to guide the museum through a leadership transition. He trained as an American social and urban historian at Brandeis University and the University of Chicago, where he got his Ph.D., he joined the faculty of Temple University in Philadelphia in 1973, where he was promoted to professor in 1985. Morris served in a number of leadership roles within Temple's College of Liberal Arts, acting as dean of the college from 1999 through 2003. He subsequently directed the Rockefeller Foundation's Creativity and Culture Program before coming to the museum. That's a tenement museum. Vogel is the author or editor of six books in American social and cultural history, including The Invention of the Modern Hospital and Cultural Connections. He founded and directed the National Endowment for the Humanities-funded Mid-Atlantic Regional Center for the Humanities. While a Pennsylvanian, which he's no longer, Vogel served on the Commonwealth's Historic Preservation Board. He and his wife, Ruth, a clinical psychologist, live in East Midtown. Their son, Kenneth, covers American politics for the New York Times. I'm sure he's been in the news a lot lately in the past couple of weeks. Uh, and their son, Jonathan, is professor of economics at UCLA. Morris Vogel, a hearty welcome to Rediscovering New York. Thanks, Jeff, and, and thanks for having me on. You're not originally from our fair city, are you? Not at all. No, I grew up in rural Connecticut. Uh, we've lived over the years in uh, suburban Boston, Chicago, Philadelphia, where we raised our kids, Tokyo, and in New York for the last 15 years. What is it that first brought you and Ruth to New York? Uh, I can't keep a job, as that resume points out. <laughs> and uh, I 
was a professor of history, dean of a liberal arts college at Temple. Uh, and uh, I, I joke, and I hope it's taken that way, that uh, I was a lot smarter than most of my faculty colleagues in that it took me only 20 years to discover it was not all that hard to convince 19-year-olds I was brilliant, and I needed, I was looking forward to, to, uh, for something uh, more challenging and, and uh, rewarding to do, and the Rockefeller Foundation knocked on the door, and easy to say yes. Hmm. How long after you came to the city did you become president of the, of the Tenement Museum, which is officially known as the Lower East Side Tenement Museum? About five years. Uh, well, speaking of the Lower East Side, um, I'm going to do a little bit of, of, of pre-sort of history. Um, like a good part of New York, we know that there were local Lenape people who lived in the area before the Dutch settled here. And uh, the Lower East Side was a part of the island before it was urbanized that had a lot of Dutch farms that were, that were here. Um, Fast forwarding to around the time of the American Revolution, um, who was James Delancey? The Delanceys were major landowners. Uh, they sided with the British during the war. Uh, they left uh, because they were on the wrong side. Revolutions sometimes do that. Division Street, which uh, marks uh, nearly the southern boundary of the Lower East Side, uh, was so named because it divided the lands of the Delancey family from the lands of Henry Rutgers. Rutgers chose the right side in the revolution. He stayed. He was a bit of a philanthropist. He gave some money to a college in New Jersey that renamed itself in his honor. Uh, Delancey's name stays with us on in, in Delancey Street. The, the American revolutionaries didn't change all the names. Why else would we be New York City and New York State? This is, we're named after the Duke of York. He was on the wrong side in the revolution. And Orchard Street, where the museum is located, uh, at the corner of Orchard and Delancey, Delance, uh, Orchard Street was where the Delancey family orchards were. Wow, I wonder why they didn't change the name from Delancey. Um, Rutgers also has a street named after him. Right. On the side. Well, um, they didn't change the name of New York. Uh, they didn't change British names. Ah, Okay. Um, a little bit of a colorful, colorful history. Uh, New York has had lots of red light districts. Uh, today I found out uh, that there was one that was down in part of the Lower East Side that was near uh, something called uh, Corlier's Hook. And a bit of etymological history, I was also, uh, maybe it's not surprising to find out that the term hookers <laughs> came from the people, the, uh, the sex workers who actually worked in the Lower East Side in New York, leave it to New York to come up with uh, some uh, important words in our, in our dictionary. Um, but post-revolution, as the city was growing, um, uh, or actually uh, before that, Delancey actually planned some development, but it never came to pass because his land was confiscated by the legislature because he was a, loyal, a loyalist. When did the Lower East Side begin to become more urban? And when would it have begun to have been broken up into, into streets? And when would houses resembling a, um, an urban landscape have begun to grow? Well, the, it's the growth of the city, the growth of its trade, the growth, the growth of its population that uh, bursts the city from its seams. Don't forget Wall Street was originally the northern boundary of New York. It was the, north, it was the wall protecting the city from the 
uh, from the wilderness. Uh, it's as the port grows in the early 19th century that you get the settlement of uh, in the kind of houses that not quite what we know today, but two and three story wooden homes that you'll get on the, the current street pattern below Houston Street. Uh, that's, early, that's early 19th century. I do a walking tour of the Lower East Side for the Tenement Museum. I do it once a week. The museum offers it maybe 15 or 20 times a week. Uh, and we on, on uh, Orchard itself, uh, just, north of, uh, just north of Grand, there's a brick structure that dates from the 18-teens that until recently was two stories tall. Since then, the owners have added a third story. It's brick because in the 18-teens, the city uh, passed a brick ordinance that required new buildings to be somewhat more fireproof than the, the wooden shanties uh, that... that that, that uh, uh, marked the area before then. So you get, you get individual family homes in the early 19th century, and then as you get mass immigration in the 1840s and 50s from Germany and from Ireland, those homes are subdivided and subdivided. If you're a landlord and there's pressure on the land, you're in real estate. What do you what do you what do you do? You the first thing you do is you say, well, this is a two story house. I can put two two families in it and charge full rent for each floor, or more, or, or, or more, or yeah. I can put a a partition between the front and back of each floor and put in four families. And what's wrong with the basement? I have five families in there. Once you are confident as a property owner that this that this population growth is not a temporary phenomena, you then uh, have the confidence to to get the capital, tear down the structure, and put up a five or six story building. Mm-hmm. A lot of the Lower East Side below Houston is uh, is composed of so-called pre-law tenements, brick buildings deliberately built for multifamily occupancy, uh, five and six stories that went up in the 1860s and 1870s. The Tenement Museum at 97 Orchard is the oldest surviving pre-law tenement in that part of the city. The law changes in, in 1879 and will require what we now call dumbbell tenements or these tenement buildings with, uh, with air shafts and, and really blind air shafts with no light in them, uh, no air in them. That's after 1879. And very, that, while there's some of that below Houston, there's much more of that above Houston. Above, and uh, th- those are known as old law tenements right. because then there was another law. So you have pre-law old tenements, law. old law tenements, and new law tenements. And then you have new law tenements after 1901 uh, that, that uh, outlaw the air shaft for new construction that require that r- every room actually open to a real source of light and air. Uh, and that uh, uh, horror of all horrors, if you're a real estate owner, that you need indoor plumbing. Uh, that's the that's the uh, 1901 law, and it will require two toilets for every four families. So even before 1901, I, I online before I saw a picture of a, a privy. It's a polite word for an outhouse, right? And it looked like it was right on the street. Uh, uh, they were in, in the backyards, right? Oh. And so a uh, pre-law tenement, I'm sorry, an old law tenement took up a, a city lot is 25 by 100 for the most part. Uh, and the old law tenements took up the, the front 90 feet 
and you didn't really have a lot of, uh, I mean, there was a backyard, but the backyard is where the privies were, and you did the washing. So the first real big wave of immigrants came in the beginning of the 1840s with German and Irish immigrants. Right. Um, what was the neighborhood like when they lived there? Uh, our part of the neighborhood uh, was very was German. It was German-speaking. It was one of the largest German-speaking communities in the world. It didn't have a significant Irish population. That tended to be down on five points and where the courthouses are today and literally the other side of Chinatown. Uh, and that's because the Irish had the misfortune when it came to life in on the Lower East Side or Klein Deutschland, Little Germany as it was called, the Irish spoke English, which was not the language of daily life on oh. the Lower East Side. And I remember reading somewhere that uh, the third largest German-speaking <clears throat> population in the world was in Manhattan, the first being Vienna and then second Berlin around the time that... Uh, uh, that may be so. We... Hist- People claim lots of things for New York. It's like the old Rheingold commercials, you know, in, in New York where, where there are more Poles than in Poland, mm. more Greeks than in Greece, and, and so on. Well, I did know one thing about uh, there were more Jews living in New York than in the state of Israel but uh, uh, when I was growing up in the 60s. But um, I want to ask you a question. Um, the elevated trains started going up in the city later in, late in the 1870s. Right. And then we have the 2nd Avenue L. That right. Went, which, how came did, down, which came down Allen Street. How did that impact the development of the Lower East Side? Uh, enormously. So this was a German-speaking community. Uh, by the 1870s, and the L goes in in 1878 and actually reaches up the Far East Side by 1880. When the L comes in at that moment, the German population has been here for a generation or so. Many of them have made it. There's something about American life that uh, allows many immigrants, not all, and not everybody who lives here. Many people are excluded from the American dream by virtue of race. Uh, but Germans ride a, a, a bit of an escalator, uh, and that allows them to have the means to get out of what by the 1870s is absolutely the worst imaginable, uh, the most crowded uh, neighborhood uh, in New York. And they can, they can you take the L, not to move, but to, to, to move out because the journey to work, the daily journey that you take to your job down in the, say, in the port of New York, in, in, the, in the downtown area, you can commute back and forth on the L. So the neighborhood empty, begins to empty out in the 1870s, actually even before the L goes in, but the L uh, really accentuates that movement. So you get empty housing, cheap housing, housing suited for poor people at the very moment that in Russia, the the, uh, the Russian Empire goes through a bit of a, a set of issues of its own, the assassination of, of Tsar Alexander II, uh, the Russian state, the Tsarist state is, is under, uh, under threat, uh, and the way to, to secure uh, that the Russian state uh, uh, tries to secure its hold on power is to give the Russian population an, inter- uh, an enemy, uh, someone to, to vent their anger at, so it's not the state. Uh, in the old days, Russians often accomplished this by attacking Ukraine, but at that moment, Ukraine was actually part of Russia, so they couldn't act out that way. So instead, the Russian state 
turn the Russian population against an internal Jewish population. Jews responded by leaving by the hundreds of thousands, ultimately by the millions. They come, they go to Western Europe, they go to Britain. Uh, uh, more than any other place, they come to the United States. With, they, come, they go across the United States. More than any other place, they come to New York. And within New York, more than any other place, they come to the Lower East Side because that's where you have cheap housing for poor people. You've got a neighborhood in which they can make themselves understood. Unlike the Irish, they speak Yiddish. Yiddish is a dialect of German. It, it makes it possible for them to, to find their way on a daily basis because not every German leaves at the same moment. And on, on top of that, of the Germans who had come uh, in the 1820s, 30s, and 30s, and especially after the, eight, the failure of the 1848 revolution in Germany, a significant number of Germans, perhaps one in 10, were Jews. So they found on the Lower East Side a, a community of co-religionists, people who could presumably uh, uh, be available to them in, uh, in, in a supportive way. Uh, they found synagogues. They found the, the, the texture of Jewish life that in some ways was recognizable and of which they could take advantage. Mm. Well, we're going to take a short break, and when we come back, we're going to continue our conversation with Morris Vogel of the Lower East Side Tenement Museum. We'll be back in a minute. You're listening to the Talking Alternative Network. listening to the Talking Alternative Network. Are you stuck in a rut? Negative thoughts, feelings, and conversations got you down? Hi, I'm Noreen Sumter, the Potentiator. Tune in every Tuesday at 9 to 10 p.m. Eastern Time and listen for new ideas on my show, Beyond Potential, Live Life Your Way, on talkradio.nyc. Are you a conscious co-creator? Are you on a quest to raise your vibration and your consciousness? I'm Sam Leibowitz, your Conscious Consultant, and on my show, The Conscious Consultant Hour, Awakening Humanity, we will touch upon all these topics and more. Listen live at our new time on Thursdays at 12 noon Eastern Time. That's The Conscious Consultant Hour, Awakening Humanity, Thursdays, 12 noon on talkradio.nyc. Talking Alternative Radio, 24 hours a day. We're back, and you're back to Rediscovering New York. I'm Jeff Goodman. And today we are visiting the Lower East Side. Our first guest is Morris Vogel, the president of the Lower East Side Tenement Museum. Morris, let's talk about the museum for a minute. It's one of the younger museums in the city, isn't it? It is. Uh, Anita Jacobson and Ruth Abram founded the museum in 1988. They found this 
disused a tenement house that had been uh, uh, condemned as unfit for human occupancy in the uh, in 1935. The city had uh, uh, passed a, a multiple uh, occupancy dwellings act that required uh, structures to be sort of fireproof. They had to have stairs made of uh, either iron or stone or brick. And this building, because the pre-law tenement, had a wooden stairway. So it could no longer be occupied. It was sealed up. And it was, in effect, it was a, uh, uh, it, it was a time machine. And they saw that you could use this building to inter- interpret the uh, multiple waves of immigrant immigration to the United States and to the Lower East Side, the hundreds of thousands of people who followed their dreams to this country and the city, who built uh, uh, lives, who uh, established families, earned livings, raised children, uh, who really built the the communities that we take of as American, think of as American, uh, through their stories, through the stories of individual families who lived in these spaces, one could get a sense of how people from many nations became Americans, and even more, how Americans became a people. And so that's a legacy that we've been living up to, and, and one that we've actually been able to extend into the uh, the the. the Recent period of the of the late twentieth century, we acquired another a tenement building, a, a, an old law tenement that stayed active through the end of the uh, through the end of the twentieth century. And in that building, we've been able to add to our stories of of German and Irish and Italian and Polish and Lithuanian and Russian uh, families. We've been added able to add families of Holocaust survivors. We've been able to add the stories of Puerto Rican migrants and the story of Chinese immigrants who came after the immigration law changed in 1965. Both of our buildings are uh, recognized by Congress as a national historic site. The tenement, the, uh, the 1863 building is a national historic landmark. It's equal in American law in terms of its historic significance to, say, Ellis Island or, uh, uh, or Independence Hall in Philadelphia. Well, sadly, well, the um, the mission of the museum actually would be well regarded by many people in the United States, who um, some of whom seem to have forgotten uh, where we came from and how what our what a lot of our roots are. And the Lower East Side is certainly a, te- uh, a testament to that. I re- remember reading somewhere that the block that the Tenement Museum is on was once the most densely populated block in the entire world. I think we, the museum says that on its website. I'm, I'm not prepared to defend that. <laughs> okay. Well, but, you're a historian, so but what you need I, primary sources for that. What I can say is that by 1900, the two square miles of the Lower East Side had a population of well over 700,000 people. To give you a sense of contrast, uh, compare and contrast, today Manhattan has a population double that, about a million and a half people, in 27 or 28 square miles, in 15 times the area. And that's and with high rises. <laughs> and we live in 30 and 40 story buildings with indoor plumbing. And these folks lived in five and six story buildings without plumbing in 1900. Mm. 
What was getting back to the the uh, uh, the Jewish immigration to the Lower East Side around the end of the nineteenth century and the early twentieth century? Um, they built up a network of social services and religious, social, and cultural organizations. What were some of those that that people who that immigrants would be able to find that would better the lives that they had in what otherwise would be a crowded, squalid place? There are a, a couple of different sorts of, of these uh, organizations. Some the immigrants build themselves, Landsmannschaften, hometown societies, a place where uh, people from a village in Bohemia or Lithuania would uh, get, they might buy a building, they might uh, rent some rooms. It was a a social fraternal organization. It also doubled as a place that provided medical care. Uh, it uh, was a place for your daughter to meet someone from the same village, so she would meet someone, say, from Italy. It was a place for for folk for people to uh, to worship. Uh, I did a program for Central Synagogue here in New York a couple of weeks ago, a uh, walking tour for the. Uh, for the 180th anniversary of this uh, Upper East Side Reform congregation that originated in a Bohemian Landsmannschaft on the Lower East Side. Today, you go around the Lower East Side and you see all these Chinese hometown societies. They're remarkably the same. So you've got building, you've got structured communal organizations that come from within. You've also got those that come from above. So German Jews who become more comfortably settled, move to the Upper East Side and the Upper West Side, will create settlement houses. Uh, the Educational Alliance, the Grand Street Settlement, Henry Street Settlement, uh, and even secular settlement, non-Jewish settlement houses like University Settlement. These For our listeners who don't know what, what settlement houses were or still are, what are settlement houses? A settlement house is a place where people who are, are literally more fortunate, who don't live in the neighborhood, who have the means and the desire to improve the lives of, of, of some of the, the poorest uh, of, of their uh, fellow, uh, not even fellow Americans yet, but their fellow human beings. Uh, it's a place you literally create a structure People from outside the, 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 the neighborhood live there. They settle there. And they provide classes and things like how to rear your children, how to cook an American meal, don't use spices, you know, go for white bread, that sort of thing. They help Americanize uh, the, the, don't use pickles. They'll make you, uh, they'll, it'll make you too excited, that sort of things. They try to bleach out the the the, uh, the customs that people bring with them also uh, art classes classes in english language all ways of helping people of of helping people adapt to a new environment the, the third large group of entities that 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 are changing the lives of immigrants are public institutions the public schools most conspicuously uh, uh, julia richman who is an uptown uh, german jew a member of Central Synagogue, becomes the first district, uh, the first Jewish and the first female district superintendent in the New York public schools. She's charged with responsibility for the Lower East Side. Uh, she knows that these schools can change the lives of the, of the 
the uh, the students in those communities. By the way, she instructs the uh, uh, the staffs in those schools to, uh, if they encounter a student speaking a home language, like Italian or Jewish, which would be the major languages during her period, Yiddish, in her period, she instructs them to wash the students' mouths out with soap. Wow. <laughs> Wouldn't quite be acceptable today. Uh, these, these were, t- these were different times, people, right. right? Oh, I remember times when growing up, one of my, one of my siblings would occasionally get their mouths, wa- mouths washed out with soap. I think that happened to me once. When not I for small, speaking but, Yiddish. No, not so. for speaking Yiddish. Um, we have uh, another couple of minutes left. Who were some of the more recent immigrants who moved into the Lower East Side, especially after the Second World War? Well, after the, the, the Lower East Side, the economy is very heavily uh, garment industry. And the garment industry uh, takes root there, not because there are waterfalls or, or, or whatnot, because of that. The, in the middle of the 19th century, you get the rise of mass production and, more importantly, mass consumption. You get department stores that drive demand the same way the Internet does now. You get standardized sizing. You get the, the mechanical sewing machine. And at that moment, you get a mass immigration of Jews and Italians, Jewish and Italian men sew. Polish men don't sew unless they're Jewish. Englishmen don't sew unless they're Italian. You get a garment industry then that produces more than half the the women's clothing manufactured for sale in the United States by 1900 in home sweatshops in the Lower East Side. The 1924 immigration law ends the immigration, essentially ends the immigration of Jews and Italians. That labor force dies out over the 1930s and 1940s. It ages out of the workplace. By the 1940s, you need workers, and the garment industry then recruits from Puerto Rico because Puerto Rican men sew. And this becomes, the Lower East Side becomes the largest Puerto Rican community on the mainland. Uh, Following the 1965 law, which ends Chinese exclusion, it ends race, the racial basis of immigration to the United States. Uh, it's the Signed co- by President Johnson at the foot of the Statue of Liberty in 1965. Absolutely. Yeah. You, get, you get a piece of legislation that opens the United States up to what it had been in terms of welcoming immigrants before 1924. Well, Chinese men sew. There's a small Chinese community, a small Chinatown that predates 18 that predates 1882 and, and the Chinese exclusion law. It's on the Lower East Side. When you open when you open the United States to Chinese immigration, you'll get a, an immigration that's attracted to the Lower East Side, and New York then becomes the Lower East Side becomes the hub of the line the largest Chinese uh, community outside of Asia. Hmm. So that's the the other. Part of a major part of the story of the Lower East Side. And of course, beginning in the 1980s, you have more artists and more young people moving into the neighborhood, and beginning in 2000, more of a, uh, I don't say renaissance, but uh, development as far as better housing and uh, transformation into more of what the neighborhood is today. Uh, Morris, we're at time. I, I would add that whoever comes is following, whoever comes to New York whoever comes to the Lower East Side is following their dreams. Yes, in New York especially. And how true that the Lower East Side embodies uh, the American dream and the dream of this great nation. Uh, Sadly, it's lost on some people now, but uh, hopefully we will not lose sight of our better angels there. 
Uh, Morris, thank you. Our first guest has been Morris Vogel, who's the president of the Lower East Side Tenement Museum. By the way, what's the website address for the Tenement Museum? Uh, it probably is www.tenement.org. Uh, okay, <laughs> great. Thanks. Well, uh, we're going to take a short break, and when we come back, we're going to have our second guest, who is one of those people who has brought something new to the Lower East Side, uh, a business owner who... Uh, appeals to people's culinary tastes, but also who has helped uh, evolve the neighborhood as well. We'll be back in a moment. You're listening to the Talking Alternative Network at www.talkingalternative.com. Now, broadcasting 24 hours a day. Talking Alternative. Do you run or are ready to open your own business? Hi, I'm Jeremiah Fox. I've been operating and opening small business for the last 25 years, and I'm the host of the new show, The Entrepreneurial Web. Tune in every Friday at noon Eastern time for insights and stories on the nuances of running small business right here on Fridays at noon, talkradio.nyc. Do you love or are you intrigued about New York City and its neighborhoods? I'm Jeff Goodman, host of Rediscovering New York, a weekly show that showcases New York's history and its extraordinary neighborhoods. Every Tuesday live at 7 p.m., we focus on a particular neighborhood and explore its history, its vibe, its feel, and its energy. Tune in live every Tuesday at 7 p.m. on talkradio.nyc. You're listening to the Talking Alternative Network. Are you stuck in a rut? Negative thoughts, feelings, and conversations got you down? Hi, I'm Noreen Sumter, The Potentiator. Tune in every Tuesday at 9 to 10 p.m. Eastern Time and listen for new ideas on my show, Beyond Potential, Live Life Your Way, on talkradio.nyc. Talking Alternative Radio, 24 hours a day. back. Support for Rediscovering New York comes from our sponsors. The Mark Myman team, mortgage strategist at Freedom Mortgage. For assistance in any kind of residential mortgage, Mark and his team can be reached at 646-330-4735. And support also comes from the law offices of Thomas Siaka, specializing in wills, estate planning, probate, and inheritance litigation. Tom and his staff can be reached at 212 495 0317. Our show is about New York, especially its neighborhoods and the myriad textures of this amazing city. There's another great show on the air about New York and specifically about the business of real estate. Good Morning New York, Real Estate with Vince Rocco, my friend and colleague at Halstead. Vince's show airs live on Tuesday mornings at 9 a.m. on voiceamerica.com and also on podcast. You can like the show on Facebook, Rediscovering New York with Jeff Goodman. And you can follow me on Instagram and Twitter. My handles there are Jeff Goodman NYC. If you have comments or questions, or if you'd like to get on our mailing list, please email me, jeff at rediscoveringnewyork.nyc. One other note before we get to our second guest, even though Rediscovering New York is not a show about the real estate business, 
When I'm not on the air, I am indeed a real estate agent in this amazing city. I help my clients buy, sell, lease, and rent property. If you or someone you care about is considering a move into, out of, or within New York, I would love to help you all with those real estate needs. You can reach me at my team at 646-306-4761. My next guest is Neil Kleinberg. Neil is the found, founder and co-owner of the Clinton Street Baking Company on the Lower East Side, but we also share a little bit of personal history, small world. Uh, Neil and I actually went to the same high school, went to Midwood High School uh, around the same time. But getting to uh, more information about Neil, he's the co-owner of the Clinton Street Baking Company and also Community Food and Juice on Morningside Heights. Neil raised himself in a crazy kitchen in Flatbush, that's in Brooklyn, by the way, among four kids, two parents, 16 neighborhood cousins, and six aunts and uncles. Sounds like a classic Brooklyn family. At 10 years old, he became a one-boy culinary wonder who'd do anything to avoid his mother's famous dish, chicken in a pot, which he says is her, the only dish that was in her repertoire. Neil opened his first restaurant, Simon's, in Lincoln Center, at just 22 years old, and in 1997, reopened the legendary seafood restaurant Lundy's in his native Brooklyn. Another close fact, Lundy's was a five-minute walk from my home growing up. Neil has appeared on Martha Stewart Living, The Today Show, Good Day New York, The Cooking Channel's United Tastes of America, Real Food on PBS, and has thrown it down with Food Network's Bobby Flay. He's the co-author of Lundy's, Reminiscences and Recipes, and of course, the Clinton Street Baking Company Cookbook. Neil serves on the advisory board of his alma mater, New York City College of Technology, his Clinton Street Baking Company has global outposts in Japan, Singapore, Bangkok, and Dubai, as well as at the Time Out Market in Dumbo, Brooklyn. Neil Kleinberg, welcome to Rediscovering New York. Hey, Jeff. How are you? So we know that you're from New York. You're from Brooklyn and Flatbush originally. Yep. Well, we talked about, uh, mentioned the small world it can be. We went to the same high school, and we just found out that we had a couple of the same teachers. What other neighborhoods have you lived in in the city? Oh, um, I lived on the Upper West Side. I lived um, in Hell's Kitchen. I lived um, up in Morningside Heights. I've lived, um, boy, I, I lived on the Upper West Side in a few locations, 91st in Amsterdam, 73rd between Central Park West and Columbus, and um, basically all around, and a lot of time in Brooklyn. Well, like me, you're kind of the classic native New Yorker with roots in Brooklyn and having spent a lot of time there. You decided that you would go into food service and food creation pretty young in your life. What was, aside from not wanting to have your mother's uh, signature dish? I, I, always, I, I always knew that I wanted to cook from when I was 10 years old. And as we were talking earlier off the air, my father was a postal clerk on the Lower East Side, and his love for food and produce and his expertise in shopping, uh, I guess, inspired me to want to cook. And when I was 10 and 12 and 14, uh, in the 70s in Brooklyn, it wasn't fashionable. There weren't uh, culinary institutes. There it wasn't, people worried, wondered about me. What's wrong with this kid? He wants to be a chef. And... Through a cousin of mine, I found, who was uh, studying criminal justice at John Jay, I found New York City Tech for Hotel and Restaurant Management. And it was a city school, and my father said, that's where you'll go, because <laughs> the tuition was cheap. 
And uh, you wouldn't know me from Midwood from high school anyway because I was a truant and I barely got out of high school. But once I found my love, culinary arts and baking and cooking and restaurant management, I found my calling and my love. And of course, I graduated with honors and loved the business and loved cooking and never looked back and cooked in New York restaurants my whole entire life. Wow, that's great. What was your first business in, in restaurants? Well, you know, I had I had um, prep cook jobs, baker assistant jobs, line cook jobs, sous chef jobs. And at 22, uh, during the time I was in college, and at 22, my best friend from culinary school said, let's open a restaurant. And I didn't have enough experience then, but we opened a place in Lincoln Center called Simon's, named after my late friend John Simon. Not the not the theater critic John Simon, but the restaurant critic John Simon. And we were a smash hit. And we were two young punks out of culinary school, 22 and 24. And in the 80s. <laughs> in the 80s. And we lit the Upper West Side on fire. So, you know, we were just, uh, we were cooking great food. We had a tiny little spot. And, of course, it went like that. Mm. What brought you to Lundy's? And for those people who don't know Lundy's, Lundy's was this uh, old line restaurant in Sheepshead Bay. I think that opened up in the 1920s, maybe. Absolutely. Uh, and they would, a huge restaurant, they would serve so many people. And then it, it shut down, I, th- I think in the late 70s or the early 80s. But then it had another incarnation. Right. And you were its executive chef. I was, you you know, it's funny what you wish for. Be careful what you wish for, because when I was in cooking school, um, my parents couldn't afford Lundy's in the 60s and 70s. That was like high end for them. It was famous for their seafood and their raw bar and their lobster shore dinners and all of this great stuff that we really couldn't afford. But I aspired to become a chef there. And 25 years later, it had a resurgence, and I interviewed for the executive chef and became the executive chef. And that was really the craziest, hardest, most pressurized job I've ever had in my life. And it was phenomenal. It was gigantic. The food was great. Uh, we basically recreated Lundy's from the 40s and 50s into, you know, in 1995. And that lasted a couple of years only, uh, and I couldn't take it anymore, <laughs> had to get out, and I came back to the city. And um, that's when I had an opportunity to come back to the Lower East Side. Mm. Well, another bit of serendipity, I worked across the street from Lundy's, not at the same time that Neil was uh, a chef there. But I will say that uh, we were talking before, before going on the air, and I remember an amazing seafood cream dish I had at Lundy's and found out that uh, Neil had created it. Um, what was the genesis of you and your partner opening the Clinton Street Baking Company in the Lower East Side? How did you decide to do that? Well, it was a very funny story that I worked with a cook at the Plaza Hotel for a few years, and he called me out of the blue and he said, Neil, you have to buy my sister's restaurant. <laughs> And I said to this guy, Tommy, I said, I haven't heard from you in 12 years or so. Why are you calling me? He said, because my sister opened a restaurant on the Lower East Side, and it's going downhill, and I want you to buy it from her, and I'll sell it to you cheap. So I asked my wife, who wasn't my wife then. She lived in the West Village, had a beautiful studio in the West Village. We walked all the way from the West Village to the Lower East Side. We walked in. 
And I looked at her and I said, what do you think? And she said, don't do it. <laughs> and so I how said, did you come about doing I, it? We then? weren't married. And I said, <laughs> I said, F you, I'm doing it. <laughs> so we did it. I did it with a partner and I started Clinton Street Baking Company on the Lower East Side in 2001, before 9-11. And we weren't married yet, uh, Dee Dee and I. And uh, I just started it very slowly, baking my recipes that I've collected over the years for our muffins, our scones, our cookies, our biscuits. The biscuits actually that I created for Lundy's, I brought to the Lower East Side. And our biscuits now are world famous. You know, we do them loaded with raspberry jam and butter, and they're amazing. We serve them with a lot of different dishes at Clinton Street. So a couple of years pass, and I'm developing this small business on Clinton Street where there was no one and very few regulars and no foot traffic, and the Lower East Side was nothing. No, I remember. I was uh, uh, on the board of a nonprofit that was based at, uh, uh, at a school around the corner uh, on, um, on Suffolk Street. And I wouldn't call Clinton Street desolate, but in terms of the kind of business that you run, it was pretty desolate. No, it was, there was only one restaurant, and it was 71 Clinton, started by Wiley Dufresne. And we were the new kids on the block coming in, but we were doing classic American food with a twist. Well, a couple of years into it, my partner and I, we decided that we were going to split and my wife bought him out. So Dee Dee and I became husband and wife, partners in the business, partners in Clinton Street. Which happened first, the marriage or the, or the, or the partners in the business? The marriage happened, and right after that, uh, I wasn't getting along with my partner, and I said to him, either I'm out or you're out. And he said, okay, I'm out. And Dee Dee bought him out, and we became partners. And uh, thanks to her, and thanks to her vision and her confidence in my cooking and my restaurant experience that we've been able to build... Um, a beautiful business and and something we're really proud of. And branches all over the place. Dubai, and amazing. Singapore. I, I don't even know how it happened. That's all Didi's Dee uh, doing. Her negotiating skills, her food skills, her uh, taste buds, all of that. Um, together, collectively, we've been able to expand and um, carry our brand all around. Mm. Oh, we're going to take a short break, Neil, and when we come back, we're going to talk about your experiences in the Lower East Side and how you've seen the neighborhood evolve since you opened Clinton Street Baking Company. We'll be back in a minute. Talking Alternative Radio, 24 hours a day. I'm the aptly named host of Tony Martinetti Nonprofit Radio. Big nonprofit ideas for the other 95%. Fundraising, board relations, social media. My guests and I cover everything that small and mid-sized shops struggle with. If you have big dreams and a small budget, you have a home at Tony Martinetti Nonprofit Radio. Fridays, 1 to 2 Eastern at TalkingAlternative.com. Are you a conscious co-creator? Are you on a quest to raise your vibration and your consciousness? I'm Sam Leibowitz, your conscious consultant. And on my show, The Conscious Consultant Hour, Awakening Humanity, we will touch upon all these topics and more. Listen live at our new time on Thursdays at 12 noon Eastern Time. That's The Conscious Consultant Hour, Awakening Humanity, Thursdays, 12 noon on talkradio.nyc.
talkingalternative.com. We're back to Rediscovering New York. We are back at Rediscovering New York, and you're back as well. My second guest on the show is Neil Kleinberg. Neil is a partner in the Clinton Street Baking Company, one of the pioneers of the revitalization of the Lower East Side as a place that people like to go and hang out and eat and drink. Um, have you seen, You've been in the Lower East Side now for 18 years, Neil. Um, how have you seen the neighborhood change since, since you opened your business there? Um, I mean, I, you know, when you're in something every single day for 18 years and you go there every day from Lopper West side and come to work, it's hard to see change. It's hard to see like your kids growing up and changing year to year. But, um, I guess it was, it was more gritty, a little grungier, a little uh, spookier. It was a little rough around the edges 18 years ago. It wasn't like you feel... Um, like you're walking through Soho or you're walking through Tribeca or something like that. It was sketchy. And unless you knew people, neighborhood people or artists on the block or other, you know, merchants, you know, it was like you didn't feel 100% safe. Mm. But, you know, 18 years later, it feels totally different and it feels... Um, <clears throat> Built up, I wouldn't say cleaner necessarily, but built up and a little swankier and a little more polished and just people moving into the neighborhood. Um, years ago, I used to see a lot of people moving in and out of our building where we are and a lot of trucks like NYU students moving in and out of their apartments and stuff. And I haven't seen that as much over the last, I'd say, five or eight years. Well, for housing, I mean, I remember uh, the Lower East Side in the East Village in the 80s, and uh, the housing wasn't great quality. And if there were students living in some of these buildings and the apartments were not really very nice, you know, as soon as they had any kind of income, they would move out and move along. Right. Uh, and maybe they were still rent regulated and weren't in such great condition. You know, one of the f interesting things, too, um, Orchard Street, um, Orchard Street north of uh, Delancey still has a lot of uh, old line discount businesses, but right. Orchard Street south of Delancey, when you opened your shop, was pretty abandoned. It was pretty, I mean, it was not, not abandoned, but it was just not nice at all. There was nothing yeah, there. Now, nothing there. you almost wouldn't recognize it, the restaurants and the bars. It's and, true. Um, one thing, too, um, and a little bit of uh, sort of revitalization, there are, not, but, but uh, transformation and moving. Um, there's a punk-oriented store uh, called I Need More. Uh, Jimmy Webb, I think, is his name. He worked uh, at a store uh, near St. Mark's Place and decided to bring, you know, that whole uh, 80s punk genre to, uh, uh, to Orchard Street. And there were a couple of interesting businesses across the street. I was very pleased to, uh, 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 to visit there not too long ago. Well, you know, a lot of our old, uh, our regular customers from the early days are, you know, were musicians and artists. And uh, I don't know if there's a show on cable called um, Lower East Side Biography. Penny Arcade uh, hosts it. And she's like an iconic Lower East Side figure. And she's been a regular of ours for years. 
and she interviews people like Blondie and the punk uh, rock, uh, you know, the Clash and all the CBGB's people. And we've had a lot of those people as our regulars and our friends on the block since we started. And of course, years later, they complained, Neil, I can never get in. I used to love your place when there was four people in there. And I would say to a neighbor or friend, yeah, well, if no one came, then I wouldn't be here anymore. So it was kind of that thing, you know, regulars and people from the Lower East Side were pissed off that we got popular and busy and that they couldn't get a seat immediately. Hmm. Well, it happens to your benefit. Um, Describe the vibe of the Lower East Side right now, the neighborhood that is now. What do you like about it? Um, it's just a really great eclectic mix of everyone. I mean, Latinos and uh, religious Jews and you know, young people and students and a lot of tourists. And it is really an incredible mix. And I know it because I see it and I'm on that block all the time, parking my car or going to the bank or, you know, running errands or going to the Essex Street Market or, you know, grabbing a hot dog at Katz's or whatever. I am in that. And so I know the the eclectic mix of people that come to Clinton Street and come to the Lower East Side. Neil, do you know if most of your customers are people who live in the neighborhood or do they, do you have, are most of your customers now people who just come through and are there because it's a place of attraction and then they, and then they find the street baking company? I'd say it's a mix. I'd say it's 50% tourism and 50% of, uh, 50%, you know, people coming to Clinton Street because they want our pancakes or they want to eat our food and they heard about it or they know it on Instagram or they know it through social media. And, and the way you describe your pancakes is mouth-watering in the elevator coming up. I was thinking, why didn't you bring any? They sound delicious. They don't travel well. You have to come and eat them there as soon as they get off the griddle, and then you'll experience heaven. Um, it's, you know, it, it's, a, it's a really, it's a mix. It's a mix of people from all over the world. And I have to say, you know, our neighbors across the street are Dominican, and our, uh, the, the cafe that these young Italian guys opened a few years ago are cool, and they have a lot of bohemian tastes and people coming in for green juice and things like that. And then you have, like, the old-school neighborhood people coming in to Clinton Street. So it is a mix. Is there anything that surprises you about the Lower East Side now that you've owned and operated a business there for 18 years? A um, little bit of a trick question, I know. It surprises me that my dad, if he were alive today, would absolutely be blown away that I wound up on the Lower East Side where his career was for 30 years and he schlepped up the, and down those streets and knew every single rabbi and every single person that lived on the Lower East Side and that surprises me that he would absolutely never believe it in a million years. Well, I was uh, about a year ago, I was walking up Allen Street with one of my best and oldest friends, Hillary Joseph, and uh, we were uh, thinking, could you imagine what our grandparents and great-grandparents would believe? They wouldn't recognize the place. Unbelievable. What advice as a business person would you have for someone who was looking to open up a business in the Lower East Side specifically? Well, it's funny. It's happened to me before. Um, a, a couple of my chef mentees and baking mentees, people that have worked for me over the years, people that I've worked with in other venues and other restaurants, 
um, have come to me and say, Chef, I want to open on the Lower East Side. And I tell them the first thing, find a side street, find a, a building that's not very prevalent, find something small and find something cheap. Ooh, lower rent, right? Get in, get <laughs> in on the bottom so that you have a chance to make it in the business without having to pay so much rent and so much real estate tax and all of that. And if you start small and grow with it, you'll be able to succeed if you have a good product. Well, thank you. Uh, our guest, our second guest has been Neil Kleinberg, the founder and co-owner of the Clinton Street Baking Shop, which you, sorry, Clinton Street Baking Company, which you can find on Clinton Street on the Lower East Side. Between Neil, House thank you so much yep. for joining us on Rediscovering New My York. My pleasure. If you have comments or questions about the show, you can email me, jeff at rediscoveringnewyork.nyc. You can like us on Facebook, and you can follow me on Instagram and Twitter. That's Jeff Goodman NYC. And I'd like to thank our sponsors, the Mark Myman team at Freedom Mortgage and the law offices of Tom Siaka. One more thing before we sign off. I'm Jeff Goodman, a real estate agent at Halstead in New York City. And whether you're selling, buying, leasing, or renting, my team and I are dedicated to our clients and come to our work with passion. And we bring to our clients the best expertise in New York City real estate. You can reach us at 646-306-4761. Our producer is Ralph Storier. Our engineer is Sam Leibowitz. Our special consultant is David Griffin of Landmark Branding. Stay tuned at 8 p.m. right here on talkradio.nyc for Beyond Potential, Live Life Your Way with Noreen Sumter. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next time. Alternative Radio, 24 hours a day. Do you run or are ready to open your own business? Hi, I'm Jeremiah Fox. I've been operating and opening small business for the last 25 years, and I'm the host of the new show, The Entrepreneurial Web. Tune in every Friday at noon Eastern time for insights and stories on the nuances of running small business right here on Fridays at noon, talkradio.nyc. I'm the aptly named host of Tony Martinetti Nonprofit Radio, big nonprofit ideas for the other 95%. Fundraising, board relations, social media, my guests and I cover everything that small and mid-sized shops struggle with. If you have big dreams and a small budget, you have a home at Tony Martinetti Nonprofit Radio. Fridays, 1 to 2 Eastern at TalkingAlternative.com. Hey, all you crazy listeners. Looking to boost your business? Why not advertise on Talking Alternative with very reasonable rates? Interested? Simply email at info at talkingalternative.com. Are you a conscious co-creator? 
Are you on a quest to raise your vibration and your consciousness? I'm Sam Leibowitz, your Conscious Consultant, and on my show, The Conscious Consultant Hour, Awakening Humanity, we will touch upon all these topics and more. Listen live at our new time on Thursdays at 12 noon Eastern Time. That's The Conscious Consultant Hour, Awakening Humanity, Thursdays, 12 noon on talkradio.nyc. You're listening to the Talking Alternative Network at www.talkingalternative.com. Now, broadcasting 24 hours a day. Talking Alternative. Do you love or are you intrigued about New York City and its neighborhoods? I'm Jeff Goodman, host of Rediscovering New York, a weekly show that showcases New York's history and its extraordinary neighborhoods. Every Tuesday live at 7 p.m., we focus on a particular neighborhood and explore its history, its vibe, its feel, and its energy. Tune in live every Tuesday at 7 p.m. on talkradio.nyc. You're listening to the Talking Alternative Network. 